This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm JP Tasker, and this is the Power in Politics podcast for Thursday, November 9th. On the pod today, anger over the Israel Hamas war spills over in Canada. Gunfire targets Jewish schools. Protesters clash at a Montreal university. We'll hear about the hate some Canadians are experiencing. Plus, a win for unions, but decried by businesses. Federal Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan is here to talk about the new federal bill that would ban employers from hiring replacement workers during a strike. And while some premiers have been critical of the federal government's push to fund housing projects directly with cities, the Prime Minister says it's the provinces that need to step up. The Power Panel is here to break it all down. We begin our coverage with a new federal bill that would ban employers from hiring replacement workers during a strike. It was a key demand from the NDP when it agreed to support the Liberals' minority government. The Liberals would never have done this. They would have never tabled this legislation but for the fact that New Democrats and Labour together fought to make this happen. Unions are applauding the legislation, but the business community warns it could lead to longer strikes. Here, is, here to respond to all this is the federal labor minister, Seamus O'Regan. Minister, thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having me, JP. So labor unions are happy today with you. What's in it for workers? Uh, well, first of all, I, the first time I heard uh, Mr. Singh at his press conference, uh, we absolutely would have done it. Um, it was on page 22 of our platform. Um, and it's in keeping with what we've been doing with, with unions uh, in support of workers uh, throughout this mandate. Uh, you know, paid sick leave. Uh, we've got a, uh, a union-led advisory table that's going to be working on automation and AI that's going to be up and going very, very soon. We've got sustainable jobs legislation that's uh, currently uh, at committee. So this isn't, you know, to correct Mr. Singh, who frankly wasn't at the table for this at all. Um, you know, th- this is the, th- we absolutely would have done this. Having said that, I will say that, you know, having worked with Alexandre Boulouris, uh, chiefly on this, um, it is a far richer and better piece of legislation as a result. What's in it for workers? I think ultimately it, it's something that workers in this country have been wanting for a, a long time. I mean, uh, one person told me that you know the, it, it, the Canadian labor movement has been demanding this longer than Canada itself, uh, longer than we've been a country. Um, it's the, this brings some balance to the table. It's something that we've always kind of taken for granted. I, I will say I'm amongst those people who think replacement workers have always been there. But should they be? Mm. I think that's the, the difficult question that we had to ask. You know, should they be? You don't have, I don't know, replacement employers. I mean, it, 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 doesn't, it didn't make for a balanced table. Everybody had gotten used to it. And I think that's why, you know, some business, uh, you know, may find this disruptive in the beginning. And by the way, you know, to the business community who managed to get tweets out from the moment we dropped it on the table so they didn't have a chance to read it and immediately condemned it, read the bill. Just read the bill. Read the details in it. We worked quite hard at it. And I can tell you, and I've got a pretty good track track record on this, whether it be WestJet or CP Rail uh, or, you know, this summer on BC Ports, stability and certainty and maintaining our supply chains are of the utmost importance to me. And in this case, we were able to do this while respecting the dignity of organized labor in this country who are essential to maintaining those supply chains. You mentioned so I think, bi- I think we've kind of squared the circle. You mentioned Read that the bill. business is not all that thrilled with it. We, we know that Bell, TELUS, CN Rail, you know, three federally regulated companies that could be affected by this have lobbied against this sort of legislation in the past. Mm-hmm. They say that this sort of bill threatens their networks and their ability to operate during a strike. What do you say to them? Just focus on the table, as they always have. I mean, to be honest with you, 96% of the time in federally regulated industries, we, I'm not on the show. 
you know, we get the deals done 96% of the time, partially because we have an excellent mediation and conciliation service here in the federal government. And, you know, when I mentioned them, all the union heads behind me and, and all the MPs from, from either party all nodded their heads. They know them. They have an incredible reputation for getting deals done. So we're really just talking about the 4% that are left. But, you know, I want the deals to be done at the table. I don't want to have to be coming on this show having either to talk about replacement workers or back-to-work legislation or, more commonly, the threat of either. Because the problem with the threat of either of those things is it, is it deviates attention and energy away from the table, and that's where the deals are done. So I am interested in stability and certainty in our supply chains and our, in our economy overall, and now we are, I think, going some way to balancing that to ensuring that stability. I want to read you just a brief uh, comment here from Robert Giz, who's the head of the telecommunications group. And he says that one of the main negative consequences of this bill, or the potential consequences, is that Canadians will not be able to access 911 in an emergency if this legislation goes through, if there is a strike, because there might not be people on the job to actually operate these cell networks. Is that a risk? Should Canadians prepare for cell service to go down if there's a work stoppage at one of these carriers? Again, you know, the fact that we had business decrying this at, you know, one minute after we laid it on the table, they couldn't have seen it beforehand, tells me, I don't know, did they read the bill? Because if they read the bill, they would know that a pivotal part of it is maintenance of activities. That means that the employer and the union, at the very beginning of a, bargain, of, of a bargaining, they've got to sit down and they've got to decide, okay, what's essential to business? What's essential to people? What's essential to health and safety of workers? What's essential to health and safety? What's essential to the environment? What's essential to the workplace? Making sure that you know, there's a workplace to come back to that's intact. All of those things must be decided. If the parties can't do it within 14 days, then the CIRB, the Canada Industrial Relations Board, will do it for them within 90 days. So, so maintenance of activities and essential maintenance of activities will be maintained and will be decided upon by the parties themselves. They are the responsible people here. You know, we've, we've entrusted in some ways supply chains to them, whether it be telecommunications or rail or whatever, and, and both as an employer and workers. So, you know, do the deal, guys. Do the hard work. That's what I would say to them. It's there. I'd be interested to know when Mr. Kiz posted that tweet. Does the exceptions to health and safety, you mentioned those two subjects, does that apply, though, to 911, say, on a wireless carrier? Well, we'd have to look into that, but I, I can tell you that there is plenty of room to negotiate that and talk about that. So uh, I don't know where Mr. Giz is getting that from, but I can tell you that we now have the tools in place to make sure things like that do not happen. This could, though, drive up the cost of business, right? You know, entrepreneurs might think twice about setting up shop here. Other companies may pack up and move away because this legislation could make their labor costs more onerous. Does that concern you? We've got to find timelines now. I mean, with the maintenance of activities uh, piece, for instance, you know, you know it's 14 days, and after that the CIRB comes back with 90 days. I can tell you that, you know, going out there at BC Ports where, you know, the possibility of replacement workers, I guess, was out there, but, you know, that didn't do anything for stability or certainty. Um, at all, actually, and, and there, was actually, there was nothing definitive in which to hang our hat on. Now, I'm, as you know, I've been on this show and talked about, we are taking a very careful look right now at the setup out in BC, primarily because I don't want to have to go through that again. I, wanted, I want to focus on stability and certainty in our supply chains. But frankly, I think you know, replacement workers is a, is a boogeyman. Um, you know, I think that, they, that business has been carting it out there when, in fact, I really do believe, take that off and concentrate on the table, on the deals that need to get done. Those deals are there to be had, and 96% of the time, they get them. You know, whether it's Bell or whether it's somebody else, they find those deals. They do, not, they, they do the vast majority of the time. Um, so, you know, I, I think they should give themselves more credit. 
The CFIB, let's throw another one at you. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business, they're also out saying it's bad news for their members. They say the legislation will prolong the duration of strikes and increase their frequency. Why are they wrong? I, I you know, prove it to me. I, like, I, I, I fail to see the proof. Um, I think if you concentrate on the table and you do the deal, then, you know, it's over as quickly as you want it to be over. Um, unions, uh, there seems to be this, this, this false notion that, you know, union members want to go on strike. They don't want to go on strike. It is an absolute last resort for them. You know, most of them don't have strike funds and then the, and, and, you know, and just the, the instability that comes with that. People still got to, you know, bring home enough money at the end of the day. And most people these days are, you know, unfortunately living check to check. Um, and so, you know, the more this, this brings some pressure, no question. It brings pressure to employers and to unions to get a deal. Um, I have no problem applying that pressure. I, you know, I make a habit of doing it in the 4% of instances in which I have to, uh, I have to come, you know, over and help out. You heard Jagmeet Singh, you mentioned his comments, you wanted to fact check some of the things he said, but his point, I think, is that there was similar legislation before the House of Commons in 2016. The NDP introduced a bill that has similar provisions to what you've tabled here today, and the Liberals and the Conservatives voted against it at the time. So was it the supply and confidence agreement that got you to introduce this legislation, or did you just have a come-to-Jesus moment, if you will, with, with this sort of thing? They didn't consult. As you, as you probably know, as liberals, we do consult and consult meaningfully. Um, you know, we derive an awful lot from that, so that's why we voted against it. Also, we've got a very proud history in this country of tripartitism, of business and unions and government sitting down together to discuss some of the you know larger issues that face us and and some of the smaller ones as well. And that's something that you know, under my watch and under this government's watch, we were only enriching with the union-led advisory table. Uh, with talking about energy transition and making sure that unions are at the forefront of that. Um, you know, we really do believe in workers and we really do believe that they are utterly essential in this extraordinarily tight labor market. Uh, their ideas are essential. I want them leading these tables. Um, so, no, this is, you know, what they did before was they did not consult business. So that's not in the spirit of tripartitism. That's why we voted against it. And they didn't meaningfully consult, which we did on this, by the way. Uh, I was at both consultations. They went on for two days. Uh, I even went to the time and trouble of making sure that uh, the seating arrangements weren't just unions, business, government, but everybody was intermingled. And you know what? It was messy. It was a messy disruptive meeting. Mm. This, this is a big deal, and I recognize it is somewhat disruptive perceptually because it's a change. Right. But I can tell you right now, it will bring more stability to the table, more balance, and more certainty because people now will focus on the table and the table singularly get the deal done. All right. Thank you so much. Federal Labor Minister Seamus O'Regan, appreciate your time, Minister. Thank you, JP. See you. Global Affairs Canada has confirmed that at least 30 Canadians were able to leave Gaza today through Egypt's Rafah border crossing. The checkpoint was closed yesterday for security reasons. That means more than 100 Canadians or people connected to Canada have evacuated the war zone this week. Several hundred more people with links to Canada are also waiting at the gates to get through. We uh, do not control the Rafah gate being open or not. We do not control neither who crosses and when. Um, finally, we were able to have first Canadians coming out. Uh, there are more Canadians scheduled also tomorrow. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, we are in the same position as uh, any other countries when the Rafa gate closes. 
uh, foreign nationals are just not able to leave. Meanwhile, what we control is the fact that uh, we're ready first and we're ready on the other side of the Egyptian border to um, uh, assist and support Canadians that are evacuated. There is also some movement today in the international effort to provide humanitarian relief to Palestinians still in Gaza. What are the chances of a Gaza ceasefire? None. No possibility. A ceasefire is still off the table, but the U.S. says Israel has begun daily four-hour pauses in its military operation to allow civilians to flee to the southern part of the territory. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says more than 10,500 people have been killed in Israeli attacks ever since Hamas launched its deadly raid on Israeli towns last month. G7 nations have so far called for pauses rather than a ceasefire. But now the French president is changing his position, tweeting all civilians must be protected. We must work towards a ceasefire and create the necessary space in Gaza for humanitarian actors. Here's what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is saying today. We've been calling for uh, weeks now for humanitarian pauses, and as I specified yesterday, they need to be significant. They need to last long enough to get people out, to get supplies in. And we have to start using them to start thinking about what the medium term and long term is. How we're going to get to a viable Palestinian state alongside a viable uh, Israeli state of Israel, uh, Jewish state of Israel, where they are both secure. The Prime Minister and community leaders are also condemning a rise in anti-Semitism after a string of violent incidents across the country. Two Jewish schools in Montreal were hit by gunfire this morning, just two days after Molotov cocktails were thrown at a Jewish synagogue and community center in the city. And yesterday, a group of Jewish students at Concordia University were violently confronted by an opposing group. Our diversity includes diversity of perspectives and opinions. But not to hate. Not to lash out with threats of violence or actual violence against someone you disagree with. No matter how strongly felt your fears or convictions are. We must not give up to violence. We need to think about how can we stay united and to talk respectfully and to walk through respectfully through this very tough period. The Jewish community, with close to 300 years of history, in Quebec is under attack and anti-Semitism is not a problem that the Jews can solve. Michael Mawson is the CEO of B'nai B'rith and he joins me now. Sir, you, as you heard there too, Jewish schools were uh, hit by gunfire last night. Nobody was injured, thankfully, but it's still a hugely traumatic development. How is the Jewish community feeling today? Well, anxious is a word that I think is far too light. Um, the Jewish community, all the way across the country, not just in Montreal, not just in Quebec, but we have seen incitement all the way across this country, and the Jewish community is on edge. And it is not uh, beyond anyone in the Jewish community, and it shouldn't be beyond anyone else that might be viewing tonight, that today marks the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht in Nazi Germany, the day that incitement led to violent action. And that is exactly what we are seeing take place because we have seen unhindered, unbridled incitement and Jew hatred against our Jewish community. And um, it is expected that we're going to see something like this. It needs to stop 
before it gets even more violent. You mentioned that it's a nationwide issue, but I just want to stay in Montreal for a second because we have some new statistics from the police. In the last month alone, there's been 73 police-reported hate crimes directed at the Jewish community. There were 72 reported last year, in the entire year. Uh, How do you characterize this, this surge in anti-Semitic incidents? It's an explosion in hate. It's an explosion, a targeted explosion, unfortunately, at the Jewish community. Um, There were mentions just before, um, uh, talk about what's going on in Gaza right now. Um, And uh, people are entitled to their own opinion about what's going to be taking place in the Middle East. But I think what our various political leaders were speaking to just now was the fact that you cannot take that passion and energy and then target your neighbor. And we see radicalization in this country. We see extremist rhetoric, and it is targeted against Jews. Um, and so what we've been seeing in Montreal these last few days, um, the, the violence on Concordia campus, we've been seeing this uh, for a while at other university campuses, but off campus as well. Um, this is an untenable situation. And um, the time is already well past for action, not just for, uh, for words, because plans should have been implemented a while ago and the law should have been enforced for a while. That's how we're getting up to this level uh, of, of, of incitement. Let me ask you about higher education. We know York University's Federation of Students called the October 7th attack a strong act of resistance. There was, of course, that brawl at Concordia University that you mentioned. Are the country's universities safe for Jewish students? Students, I can certainly tell you, do not feel safe. Uh, Jewish students are not safe on campus right now. I was just participating at, a, at a, an event at a Jewish synagogue in Toronto where we had uh, students and uh, members of uh, different organizations that assist students, and they all said uh, with one voice all the way across the province that uh, students, Jewish students, do not feel safe. And it's from statements just like that. Uh, Justifying resistance means justifying terrorism and justifying the murder of Jews. And they can see it in their eyes. We see the explosion on university campuses. Every student has the right to an education that's free from hate. And unfortunately, many universities are not doing their job. They're not uh, keeping it down, um, demanding respect amongst students, but also saying loud and clear, we will not allow any of our student population to engage in rhetoric that we believe is, um, is calling for violence against others. Uh, There is an absolute erosion in civility taking place right now, and that is a failure in leadership, including from our institutes of higher education, many of them. Have you made that point to any university president or maybe some of the folks that run these colleges? Have you made that point that people just really don't feel safe right now and more needs to be done? We have made that point, but unfortunately, many aren't acting and many are trying to pass the buck. And I'll give a perfect example. Um, The um, uh, Toronto uh, TMU. Um, in uh, the university formerly known as Ryerson in Toronto had 74 students, many of whom anonymously signed a letter which justified terror. And these are law students. Um, And rather than dealing with this issue uh, under their own rules and making their own education and what's wrong uh, or is anything uh, in order in terms of expulsions or suspensions of the students, let's make our own decision, they ended up hiring a retired judge to look into this Uh, for himself and so in in effect trying to create a blue ribbon panel Mm. why cannot institutions in canada 
take the authority and responsibility that is theirs and theirs alone to create a civil environment for all of its students. That is their obligation and they should not be passing the buck. Speaking of institutions and responsibilities, there's also an imam in Quebec, Adele Sharkawi. He denounced what he calls Zionist aggressors, and he called on Allah to kill the enemies of the people of Gaza and to spare none of them. Should this man be arrested and charged with the crime? Uh, This is an example of this incitement that we were discussing, and, and I don't know what's worse, this individual making this statement publicly or the crowd listening in rapt attent, and not just one person, we're talking about a mob who are listening and approving of this messaging. Absolutely, this individual has to be charged. Absolutely, we have to begin enforcing the rule of law and hate laws. And I'll tell you something else. The Jewish community feels it's well past time to make excuses. Let's not make excuses that our police officers need more training, that they don't have the training. They have the training. We need the political leadership to uh, allow for police and Crown attorneys to to, uh, enforce the rule of law in this country. That starts all the way at the top. It starts with our Prime Minister. It starts with our Minister of Justice, Arif Varani, issuing directives, getting in touch with his provincial and territorial counterparts so that our police understand what is this What is the plan? How are we going to tamper down this incitement? Because what ends up happening if we don't deal with this incitement and then we're going to get a violent situation take place, we will see an overreaction that will um, trounce upon the civil liberties that we're also concerned about protecting quite rightly right now. We need a plan, um, but that plan begins with having meetings. Have those meetings been had? We're not aware of, of any such meetings that have been taking place between the, the territorial and provincial leaders and the federal government and the justice ministry. That has to have had taken place yesterday. The Crown and the police should be directed in general terms on how to deal with this incitement, how to deal with this hateful speech, calls to genocide, iconography of terrorist organizations which keep popping up at rallies all the way across the countries, which is causing incitement to Jews, and we are seeing the results of this right now. We cannot wait. We can't wait for someone to be killed. The federal government is chipping in $5 million to help with um, security at religious and cultural sites. Is that enough? I don't believe so, not from what we've heard. We've heard uh, security costs are through the roof. Um, all the way across the countries, because it's not just synagogues, it's schools, uh, children uh, can't even, uh, parents don't feel safe with their kids outside at recess right now, with the situation right now. So is $5 million enough? It's a lot of money. It's going to get birthed through rather quickly. Um, unless we tamp down the incitement, let's go to the root. Right. The root is not the security. The root is enforcing the rule of law. Those who are inciting others Um, and sometimes using crafty language, um, those are the people that have to be uh, dealt with properly through our judicial system, and then we won't need those security dollars. If we are enforcing the rule of law and those who are offending uh, the hate crimes, the hate speech laws in this country, they'll know that they can't get away with it, and others will learn that lesson as well. All right, let's leave it there. Thank you so much to Michael Mostyn, CEO of B'nai B'rith. Appreciate your time, sir. Thanks so much, JP. While some premiers have been critical of the federal government's push to fund housing projects directly with cities, the prime minister says the provinces should step up. 
when we put forward $900 million uh, as Quebec's share of the housing accelerator, the province of Quebec said, okay, we're going to step up and double it. There's not another province that has offered to do that. I can't speak for the uh, for Doug Ford or the other provinces. The, the only thing I can say is that I'm very happy. <laughs> the goal of the $1.8 billion joint deal is to build 8,000 affordable housing units for low- to middle-income households. What are the political optics around this debate? Let's bring in the power panel. Nagan Sinclair is a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press and a professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Manitoba. James Moore is a senior advisor at Denton's and a former Conservative cabinet minister. Andrew Thompson is a former Saskatchewan cabinet minister, now Chief of Government Relations at the University of Toronto. And here with me in studio is Stevie O'Brien, who is a senior advisor at Macmillan Vantage. So James, let's start with you. What do you make of the province's griping about cities cutting deals with Ottawa? Is it just to maybe shield them from criticism that they're not investing more on their own in housing? No, I think it's I think it's fine. Look, the, the prime minister's in a feisty mood. He recognizes this is an important issue. And when you had premiers uh, outside of Atlantic Canada united in their frustration with the government of Canada with regard to the carbon tax rollback for one region of the country, but not for the rest, it's not a bad political move for the government of Canada to then divide and conquer when it comes to housing. But each province, it has to be understood, each province has a very different dynamic in terms of the housing pressures. There's not a Canadian housing market. There's not a British Columbia housing market. There's a Vancouver, greater Vancouver housing market, a Victoria housing market, an Okanagan housing market. It's very diversified across the country. Provinces are right to say we have a better understanding of the needs on the ground. The federal government can't even rebuild one house at 24 Sussex Drive, let alone manage a whole pan-Canadian house, house building mandate. And to give provinces more flexibility to know what they know best in their own backyard is an entirely reasonable expectation. And, and the federal government, to their benefit, should should recognize that and be more flexible in their, in their approach with provinces. I have covered 24 Sussex a lot, and they still don't have a plan for that. But we're expecting something this fall. We'll see if that ever comes through. Maybe they'll build that first before they get to uh, everything else. Stevie, when we look at the polls, and this is really critical, I don't want to pinpoint one in particular, but when you look at all of them that are available, the Liberals are really underwater with younger people, like 20, 30 points behind. Is this something that the government really has to ramp up a bit like how do you really deal with this issue better to communicate to people who are worried about being able to buy a home what do you say to those folks they're clearly not having any success with it right now you know, absolutely Ho affordability and housing is key uh, especially for that demographic and I think that's what you're seeing uh, ever since the shuffle uh, Minister Fraser and sort of the government writ large have been making housing announcement after housing announcement. I think he's out there almost every week. Even yesterday, we saw an announcement by Minister Duclos about more um, f using federal lands to build mm -hmm. more houses. They're really pulling on every uh, lever that they can. And, uh, I, and I think we're going to see that, and I know we'll talk more about the Fez, but I think we'll see more of that in the Fez. Yeah. One thing I think um, that is... Uh, that they have to politically deliver on the, the housing and affordability. And I think giving money directly to unfriendly premiers, they may not get the credit mm. that they really need in those jurisdictions uh, for that money that they're spending. If you remember Stephen Harper's uh, economic housing action plan, I think those signs still exist in some parts I've of seen the country. Them. Yes. <laughs> and so that was effective branding. That was getting, that was getting uh, credit here, here. for spending money. And... Uh, and and I think that we need that. to do, yeah. we need to do something. The, the, the liberals need to do something similar and get the credit. Um, so then, is that what this is about? You think then politics is not really about 
it's just easier to deal directly with the cities that they want to just get credit for handing out money? I think they need to get the credit, yeah. uh, but I do think it is about housing, and I think it's about moving quickly. They're calling it a housing crisis, and, and they're acting like it's a crisis. Andrew, what do you make of this? Are the provinces griping for any good reason? I mean, Danielle Smith's point about Quebec gets a big lump sum, 900 million bucks, they can give it to any town or city they want, whereas everybody else across the country has got to go to Sean Fraser, cap in hand, looking for cash. Is that a problem? Well, such is the way the Federation works. I mean, no government uh, of any party stripe is going to do uh, an end run around the Quebec government, whoever's in power there. That's just a simple fact of it, and that's always been the fact of it, that the money that flows to municipalities and universities and everything else goes directly through the province of Quebec. That doesn't need to be the case in other places. The piece I worry about with the Housing Accelerator Fund, and this is uh, you know, a little different than, than I think what others are, are saying, is that the problem with dealing with the municipalities is you end up with a lot of really uninspired, uh, unaspirational uh, changes. Like most of what we're seeing in Ontario right now are deals cut to move from what are allowed to be lots with triplexes to lots with fourplexes. I mean, I can't think of a more blasé you know, way to try to address a housing crisis. Now, we'll see what happens when they start to put the big money in, and that's what this announcement is starting to show, is that they are freeing up big blocks of money. Quebec's going to get its proportional share. We know that that means for Toronto and the GTA combined, about $600 million is going to have to flow into that region hmm. uh, to deal with it. Vancouver is obviously going to get a big chunk. Calgary and Edmonton will as well. Uh, concentrating that money will help in terms, uh, potentially, of driving forward some big projects. But what we're not seeing coming out of the federal government is uh, you know, any sense that there's something big and aspirational here beyond triplexes to fourplexes. Where's the support for Olivia Chow's uh, decision to try and move municipalities back into building departments? Where's the support for Doug Ford's uh, you know, plan to do more in terms of prefab housing? Those pieces are all missing right now, and I think that's what people are waiting to see is, is there anything more to this, or are we really just tinkering with municipal bylaws? Yeah, Nigan, do you think they're being ambitious enough? I mean, even when we're talking about the Housing Accelerator Fund, it's $4 billion in total, but the amounts that are, cities themselves are getting, they're not that high. It's like $10, 15000000 I mean, that doesn't really seem like a huge boost when the CMHC, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, says we need to build 3.5 million more units by the end of 2030. We need to build so many more homes, and yet this just seems like pocket change, right? Well, I mean, it's also... Very, very true that some of the least capable places to build really innovative programming is, like I said before, in municipalities. Because what ends up happening with municipalities is they often get the scraps or they often their leftovers uh, to deal with some of the major issues. And what are we really talking about? That houses that provinces leave behind? Well, we're talking about really poor people. We're talking about low-income housing. And so that's where many municipalities are focusing their energy. And I think it's very apt that uh, when you're talking about major issues that are occurring within the country, uh, it might just be that the accelerator might be able to touch upon that issue. So I might be taking a bit of an optimistic approach uh, when looking at giving municipalities money. And perhaps it's not a lot, uh, but in the end of the day, whether, whether that will deal with that issue will come to light. But, you know, I want to talk about just one other thing, that, that this came out in a very key key moment politically for the Trudeau Liberals. I mean, we can't forget that the one kind of bastion of hope for Trudeau was the hope that Wab Canoe, Manitoba Premier, uh, would come out and sort of, he was quite silent on the issue of carbon taxing and, and uh, talking about some of the things mm. James talked about of kind of
of breaking perhaps this strong premier front when it came to talking about who gets breaks in the ta carbon tax and who doesn't. Uh, but Wabku very much went with some of the right-wing premiers uh, by talking about saying, you know, we Manitoba deserves a, a cut on that tax too for natural gas. And I think that was a kind of tipping point that maybe have made this announcement much more pertinent and much more important to get the kind of credit that we're talking about. Because they really are not getting the credit on credits, uh, rebates, what they need is a big ticket money, a big ticket announcement like the one of Quebec today to stand beside Francois Legault and to say we are dealing with this issue directly. Yeah, I was surprised when Wab Canu took that position, um, saying that he believes that there is a lot of unfairness in how that home heating oil um, program is structured. I was not expecting that from him. Just one last thing, though, to you, Nigan, on housing. Do you think that people really care about whether the money's coming from the province or the feds. Like, they just want to see homes built, right? Like, do they really care about all this jurisdictional squabbling, or is it just people like you and I who watch this closely? Uh, well, I actually think it's about another thing on top of that. I think what people are seeing, particularly in urban areas, is a radical rise in homelessness. You alluded to that in your interview just a few minutes ago. Uh, this issue of homelessness has become a real pertinent problem in virtually every Canadian city, the idea of encampments. Uh, or, you know, we just have to look through the streets of Winnipeg, Toronto, Vancouver. I mean, the encampment situation is really getting out of hand. So dealing with that issue is very pertinent. But I also think that what you mentioned before, that the youth vote, that kind of bedrock support that the Liberals had within Eastern Canada, within Central Canada, uh, those things are really sh shaking to the core. But, I mean... Anyone who looks at this policy would realize that the, the cost of housing has increased so exponentially. If there is a big ticket, big pot of money that's available for building houses, they still will be very expensive houses that many youth will be priced out of the market. Yeah, I, just, I mentioned that stat, 3.5 million new units by the end of 2030. That's what the CMHC is projecting. We need to return some affordability to the market. Last year, we built about 260,000 homes, and that was almost a record amount that was a lot and cmhc was happy with that but they also said we got to do a lot more to actually get to our target okay let's pivot just for a moment um i want to get on to the fall economic statement and talk about other news uh finance minister christia freeland will present the fall economic statement on tuesday november 21st we got the date today um what do you make everyone about this i'm going to start with you stevie what are you expecting freeland to present here do you expect her to kind of continue to throw on the brakes a little bit maybe rein in spending she has suggested that's going to be 15 billion dollars in cuts um in the next few years to try and get the fiscal house in order do you expect to see more of that or will they be splashing cash around I think the Liberals have a, a big challenge ahead of them, and they're going to have to walk a very fine line between demonstrating fiscal restraint and that the, the sort of wild days of COVID spending are over, while still honoring the spirit and supporting the programs that they've agreed to in the Supply and Confidence Agreement and keeping the NDP from uh, calling an election. And I think that's going to be a really uh, interesting line to dance. We'll also see probably... Um, the, the, the $15 billion in cuts that Minister Anand uh, has sort of been working on may be booked into the broader framework, but I don't anticipate that we'll be seeing the specific program details um, in this. That'll probably wait until the new year. Uh, but it is going to be, it's going to have to be, uh, they're going to have to sort of walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah, James, what are you expecting? I mean, do you think there will be some fiscal probity in this document, or do you think that they will be getting that checkbook out? 
No fiscal property, but fiscal property relative to an NDP Liberal coalition, I suppose. The Liberals, the Liberals would be wise to set out some kind of a fencing around what's what's actually possible in an NDP Liberal coalition agreement heading into the budget. It's a fall economic statement, but the House sits for after the remembrance break week, it sits for four weeks, and they sit and they don't sit until the end of January. Then they come back, and shortly thereafter will be the federal budget. They'd be wise now to set down their markers and say, look, there are, there are limitations to this agreement. There are limitations to an extra 12 months of power that we're not going to burden our children with. And they should also send a signal that they've listened to the Bank of Canada and TIF Macklin, that they're not going to pour uh, recessionary gasoline on the recessionary fire all over again and allow the Bank of Canada to start easing those rates so that there's all this housing accelerator money that they're pumping out into, into the countryside when people are building homes. Nobody's going to be able to afford them if they can't get a mortgage that's within a, a reasonable uh, price point because interest rates haven't come down because they've done all this recessionary spending. So they, there is a balance they need to strike. I think they should be clear to sort of segregate themselves from the NDP spend forever mantra, uh, but lay down some clear markers about you know where they want to go in terms of making housing genuinely more affordable for people by by, by listening to Tiff Macklem and and not being uh, recessionary in their approach. Andrew, you know, there is obviously this this debate or this struggle, if you will, between monetary and fiscal policy, but the Liberals have to deliver on some big promises to the NDP, like we were just discussing. They have pharmacare, and they have to work on dental care as well. There's going to be a much more ambitious rollout of that program to cover a lot more people. Those things don't come cheap. Uh, you know, how do you balance all this? How do you, how do you deal with the need to not you know, throw gas on the inflationary fire while also delivering your political promises to Jagmeet Singh and the NDP who are keeping you in power right now? Well, this is about uh, making sure that your spending has real impact. And I think that that's one of the challenges this government's had over the last several years is there's been a lot of spending and nobody's quite sure on what. One of the things that the NDP has been very clear about is that spending needs to be focused on programs that benefit ordinary Canadians. And that's why you see them pushing for the increases in uh, pharmacare, which are a burden to, uh, to Canadians, pushing for uh, improvements in dental care, which is a burden to a lot of families, uh, and wanting to make sure that that money is actually going into the, into the pockets of ordinary Canadians, not just into a bloated bureaucracy, not just uh, into a bunch of uh, you know, uh, transfer programs that are, are unclear as to what the, the support is. They're also, though, I think, providing the Liberals with an opportunity to compare and contrast with what is a very uh, emerging as a very severe austerity program being proposed by the Conservatives, a return to that kind of Harper tightened budget, uh, which we all know what the cuts look like under those governments. And so, you know, the Liberals are potentially, and I, I don't know that they've actually got the ability to do this, but they're in a potential spot to find that kind of Goldilocks position. Says, yes, we're spending, but we're going to drive it into the right spots. Yeah, Nigan, what do you make of that? Is that how the Liberals um, kind of gussy up this fall economic statement by saying, we don't want to be cutting like the Conservatives would? We don't want to see austerity in this country. Is that how they try and sell it? Now, let's be clear about this fall economic statement. I mean, it comes out uh, at the heels of the Liberals want to talk about anything but carbon tax and the Premiers. And to be able to take control of the issue, they got to make a big announcement, they got to make a big plan, and, and the fall economic statement is a good place in which to do that, to take the energy out of people like ourselves, talking about when the premiers feel disunity or feel they're being undermined. And so that's really what the fall economic statement is intended to do, which is what we're doing right now, even pivoting off of discussions around the carbon tax. I mean, you know, there's no coincidence that the Trudeau Liberals had announced at the exact same time that they're going to cut 500 
$500 million in spending in the professional travel uh, services, consultations in the Treasury Board announcement. So, I mean, there's no doubt whatsoever that they're trying to get in front of what is the main criticism of their work in pharmacare, uh, in the issues around dental care, and the fact that these programs will cost a great deal. But I actually want to disagree a little bit with James in that I, I, I may think that may be a proactive move to begin to look at being aggressive with talking about being a bit more fiscally responsible. But I actually think the Trudeau Liberals are going to ride on those two issues into an election. So they want to embed themselves within that issue. And, and we may see more direction, may support in that area. It might not be big ticket items, but I think it'll be a big, really big part of the fall economic statement. Okay, let's leave it there. Thanks, guys. Thanks to the Power Panel, Stevie O'Brien, Andrew Thompson, James Moore, and Egon Sinclair. There could be another carve-out coming to the federal carbon tax after a home heating oil was exempted. This one would affect farmers. They're already exempt from paying the tax on gas and diesel, but Bill C-234 aims to extend that to natural gas and propane. The Senate is expected to vote on it in the coming weeks. The bill already passed the House of Commons thanks to opposition support and a few uh, Liberals as well. Michael Barrett is the Conservative critic for Ethics and Accountable Government, and he joins us now from the foyer of the House of Commons. Mr. Barrett, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me on. So this bill will create a carbon tax carve-out for some farmers. Tell us why your party's pushing this legislation now. Well, this is incredibly important at a time when Canadians are facing um, record high food price inflation. Uh, they're struggling with the cost of living across the board. And um, it's, uh, it's very easy to understand that when you tax the farmer who grows the food and the trucker who fo- moves the food and the grocer who sells the food, it's a tax on the Canadian who's who's buying the food. And we have Canadians lined up in record numbers at food banks, two million per month, a third of them are children. Uh, it's incredibly important that we uh, are able to take the tax off uh, this, um, take the tax off our, our producers. Yeah, I mean, just to put it in perspective for our audience, uh, I spoke to uh, a chicken farmer today, actually, from the chicken farmers group, and they estimate the cost on average every year of the carbon tax for the average chicken farmer is $41,000 a year. Do you think that seems fair? Oh, it's, it's absolutely unfair. And we know that in the context of the news this week from uh, Justin Trudeau's own environment commissioner that um, they're not going to hit uh, their targets with uh, their carbon tax plan. Um, but what they are hitting is the pocketbooks of everyday Canadians um, with the downloading of costs that has to happen. The, that the $41,000 that that chicken farmer has to pay um, he, he's not able to you know, uh, um, absorb that out of his margin, um, that cost gets passed on to consumers. And this is why we have this, um, this affordability crisis and Canadians are struggling to be able to feed themselves. But the government does rebate some of the uh, carbon tax for farmers, right? They, there is actually a rebate for eligible farming expenses that does take a chunk of the cost off. Is that not enough? Why not just leave the rebates? Why not just make them more generous? Why actually dismantle this whole section of the carbon tax regime? Oh, well, just like we've seen with the, um, the, the carve-out that came in Atlantic Canada this week for Canadians, uh, the 3% of Canadians who, who heat with um, home heating oil, this was done because um, people are struggling to be able to uh, afford to heat 
their homes. Now, the liberals have said that the carbon tax actually, um, people end up with more money in their pocket. Uh, and if that were true, then of course they would leave the carbon tax on and um, can, people would continue to, to roll in the piles of cash that they make by paying higher taxes to Justin Trudeau. But that simply doesn't add up. And the same is true for our, for our food producers. And that's why this bill that has gone to the Senate is incredibly important. Um, it didn't pass with the support of the Liberal government, but um, opposition members and, and a, a, couple of, um, a couple of Liberals um, who obviously got enough phone calls at their office or, or um, grocery bills sent to them by, by their residents and um, heating bills sent to them by uh, agricultural producers, um, they voted with us to send it to the Senate and, and we're going to wait um, for that vote following uh, the, the constituency week that's coming up. Yeah, Cody Blois, uh, Liberal MP from Nova Scotia who led the charge on the home heating oil exemption is also one of the MPs that voted for this piece of legislation as well. He's active on the agricultural file. You mentioned the Senate. Um, there are a number of Trudeau appointees in that chamber who are not happy with this bill. They don't think it's fair. They don't want to see the you know parts of these things carved out. They don't necessarily want to see uh, a tax break for, for farmers. What's your message to those folks? Um, food doesn't come from the grocery stores. It comes from the farmers who grow it. And this tax system is absolutely unfair. It's doing absolutely nothing to help the government meet their environmental targets. Um, they, they've missed uh, seven of eight of them. They're, they're not driving down emissions, but what they are doing is driving up prices. And it's, um, it's so important, you would think that uh, the uh, honorable senators who, uh, who don't support this legislation would take a look at the global situation and see what global events do um, to, to food prices and to supply chains. And our food security is so important and we rely on these hardworking uh, Canadian farmers to feed our cities, to feed our families, um, and they need to also be able to feed themselves at the end of the day. And the current carbon tax system doesn't allow for that, and it's just driving up prices. And I encourage all members, uh, uh, all honorable members in the Senate, to support this important common sense legislation. Okay, so we know what you're against. We know you're diametrically opposed to carbon taxes, but we don't really know what the Conservatives are for when it comes to the environment. How? What do you do? Did we just abandon all of our emissions targets? If there, is there a plan from the Conservatives to actually try and rein all this in? Well, let's be clear at. Uh, you know, right out of the gate, that the Liberals aren't um, executing on a, an environmental plan. This, that's a tax plan. And we oppose that, as you said. Our plan is to, of course, invest in, in technology. And this government has done, the Liberal government has done everything they can to get in the way of approvals of um, tidal energy projects. Their red tape makes it impossible to get clean hydroelectric power built. Um, they haven't got approvals uh, done that were um, ready on the table for them, just ready for their signature in 2015 when they took office for, um, for, for LNG uh, projects. And when our allies come, uh, come across uh, the Atlantic, come across the Pacific, and they say, hey, can we get some clean Canadian LNG? And our government says, well, there's no business case for it. Um, it's absolutely uh, ridiculous. We, we have an environment minister, Justin Trudeau's environment minister, doesn't even believe in zero emission nuclear uh, energy. And we need to get the red tape out of the way so we can have um, small modular and very small modular reactor technology um, into development and, uh, and put in place in our, in our rural and remote and far north communities. 
all of these things would do so much more to cure Canada off um, dirty dictator oil and allow us to uh, enjoy much, uh, a much cleaner environment, lower emissions, and it can be done with Canadian solutions. And that's a plan that's going to create good Canadian jobs, powerful paychecks, and it's not going to be a tax that does nothing to reduce emissions, but makes it harder for people to feed themselves. In fairness to the federal Liberal government, though, they are building the Trans Mountain Pipeline. That languished for years. They bought it. It's getting built. They greenlit the LNG Canada proposal out in Kitimac, B.C. That's going to be $30, $40 billion project, one of the largest private sector developments in the history of our country. They have done some things. They're working on carbon capture and storage technology. You mentioned technology. That's one thing they're working on. But even, you know, Canada's environment commissioner who had a report out this week he found that even when we're doing the carbon tax and we do all this technological innovation we're still not going to meet our 2030 targets is it your party's proposal to just abandon the paris climate commitment altogether just move on from that and go with something else well what we're seeing from the government today that says that they're the most ambitious in history on on uh on addressing uh their climate targets is that they're not going to meet those targets. And what we're talking about today is the important work that Canadians can do to reduce emissions while also making sure that we're creating good Canadian jobs. And neither of those things uh, involve a tax. So we'll take a look. When we have an opportunity, JP, to go to the polls in a carbon tax election, Canadians can have a choice um, between a government with a tax on, uh, on everything, uh, on you know, gas, home heating, and, and groceries, and a party that wants to put forward, um, you know, a platform that will support a, a cleaner environment uh, with the use of technology. And we'll, we'll take a look at what the situation is then um, with respect to how far they've fallen away from targets and how close we are to, to whatever deadlines that they've missed. And, and we'll... Uh, and we are going to deliver um, better results for Canadians. Okay, let's leave it there. Thank you so much, Ontario Conservative MP Michael Barrett. Appreciate your time, sir. Thank you so much. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm JP Tasker. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.